Hi, welcome to a Design Exec Club. This is the USA. It's the sixth edition, so that means for six months we've been doing this. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design. Joining me is an amazing panel, but actually over the last month we've been drilling in to find out just how many design executives we've got in the club that have come through the different design awards, the New York Design Awards, London, Paris, Berlin, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. And we found out there's over 5,000 design executives that have been involved with this, which is phenomenal to think that we've got that larger cohort. But today we've got, you know, a set of minds who are going to go focus on what is the new possible? You know, we know that we went through that there was a react phase to, to COVID. We know there's a rebound phase and we know that there's a reimagine. But in that reimagine comes new possibilities. And those new possibilities are some of the things which are developing and they're, and they're developing in a very nascent way. So we're actually going to take you back to Superstorm Sandy and how did, um, uh, how did New York deal with the, the challenge that came up from that and how did they work out what the beyond here new future was going to be. And we're also going to actually um, just drill in now with Lynette. We're going to have a little chat with you about this idea of solve design versus style design. I know it was something that was a, a new concept, uh, you know, to be put so so direct to you. You've been looking at that. What, what have you understood about those two differences? Yeah, so, uh, again, this is something that I started thinking about um, a while ago, uh, just kind of when the George Floyd protests were going. Um, I started thinking about, like, my position in design and, like, why, uh, I shouldn't say why I'm not part of a crew, but like how design could really um, affect change in the in the community and like really redesign systems like the police or um, our communities or um, hospitals, health organizations, government, you know, in any in so many ways. So, um, again, this I was really drawn to this idea of style led versus solve led. And I think it's a real opportunity for us right now to really kind of look at designing for the human condition and really rethink, you know, like uh, our society in a big way. And I think that, you know, I think somebody mentioned before that it's kind of hard for designers because we always focus so much on style, but I think we can still bring style to that process. Um, it shouldn't be like what's primary in our minds right now. But the other thing that I kind of wanted to say too is just the idea about representation mattering. You know, I do think that that's a really key piece to this too. Um, even in the idea of getting people in the community involved or getting people who are really affected by this pandemic or the economy or, you know, whatever the case is, like really bringing in, drawing in people that can represent what the real issue is. Um, I do think as a design community, we, we kind of come at it from an elitist point of view. Um, and there are a lot of people who are suffering on the ground who really need to be in those conversations as well. And uh, a friend of mine, like, you know, he, he had a really interesting point the other day. I was watching another video. I've watched a lot of videos <laughs> in the past week. Um, but he made this point about somebody had to design slavery. Somebody had to design Jim Crow and redlining and all those things that were uh, big institutions that were meant to hold, you know, Black people specifically back. Like, those were designed. And so, you know, we need, this is our opportunity to really rethink, like, how do we, like, create a world that all of us are accepted in or that, you know, like, that is not about exclusion, but it's really about inclusion. So, you know, just thinking about design is so much more than just creating beautiful objects or, yeah. you know, but it really can just impact the whole society. I love that because we, we, what you've been able to do there, Joe, just referring to that somebody had to design slavery. And that, and that would have been done through an iterative process in there. 
But possibly, yes. But the, the interesting thing is there was no logo for slavery. Okay, that's not the design that we're right. talking about. It's, like, it's not a logo. It's not right. an artifact. There wasn't a T-shirt. There was no merch. It just actually was It was something that existed. And that's, and that's very interesting for us because we're always comfortable in talking about design when it comes to artifacts. You know, I've got uh, I've got uh, uh, one of our logos on on a cup here, and we can say, "Oh, that's well designed," and we can talk about you know how it's recyclable and multi multi use, but we don't talk about how changing the way that things which are broken can actually be corrected. Mm-hmm. And often we actually look at things that get broken, and we and and we don't understand that there's been a purposeful pursuit to create that circumstance. Uh, Rick, um, I'll throw it to you because I remember we had a long conversation about Jeannie Gang and the work that she'd done uh, about incarceration. I've mentioned that before. Um, And what was interesting was she began to even get down into the way that people are in solitary confinement, the way they hand the food across, that it was actually meant to go and block people so that they didn't even get to see or a person's flesh when their food was put into the cell. Like this was total sensory deprivation. You know, we know that there's design that's done for those very wrong reasons that are in there. But we seem to be past that now, don't we? I think uh, you, you'd worked on a few projects uh, when you were at uh, NYC that were to do with making the police more accessible, making sure that the uh, police station was seen to be the safest place in the community, not the worst place in the community. You know, we're coming to the end of the last year of uh, Bill de Blasio's mayoralty, and one of the initiatives that he tried to make happen, um, and uh, which is now... Uh, been significantly delayed is closing Rikers Island and changing the nature of incarceration, doing what he called, what we've called the borough-based jails and trying to make it easier for uh, people who are incarcerated, certainly those awaiting trial, uh, to be uh, closer to uh, their families and friends, uh, 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 not isolated uh, and and hidden away. Um, It's regrettable that that possibly because of the pandemic and resource allocation has been delayed. Rethinking how people are incarcerated, I think, will come back vividly with the next mayor, uh, because in a certain sense, the lockdown, no pun intended, has given us some indications of what it means to be isolated, uh, whether it's in solitary, Mark, you're living alone, you know, or or what did... Uh, Sartre say about hell, you know, uh, being incarcerated with other people, you know, maybe two other people as I am. Uh, It's not hellish, you know, where I am. I can't complain. I'm very fortunate. But uh, uh, what, you know, will be the nature of how people interact around uh, criminal justice system in the future? Yeah, uh, Studio Gang, Jeannie Gang had a lot of insight, not only on incarceration, but on how... um, uh, there can be better communications between uh, police officers often living very far away from the communities uh, in which they're uh, stationed and, and, and those in the communities. Uh, she and her team cut new ground in Chicago with uh, uh, District 10, I think it was, where it was a basketball court in the parking lot. But not to belabor that, I think there are a lot of things that we can predict or hope for or aspire to in the future that come out of new realizations that the pandemic has thrust upon us. And uh, uh, interaction is one of them. Uh, And we can come back to that later if, if there's time. Yeah, we will come back to it a bit later. I remember an interview that I heard with the head of Scotland Yard 
and he was talking about the thing that actually broke the compact for uh, police in the United Kingdom was traffic offences. And he said, well, if traffic offences weren't part of the police, then it meant that when the police were interfacing with the public, they were dealing with really serious things. It was somebody had stolen your property, we're here to help you. Somebody had assaulted you, we're here to help you. Somebody has been murdered, we're here to help you. When traffic offences came in, all of a sudden they became an annoyance in people's everyday lives and it changed the personality and I go, now, that's an interesting design consideration, isn't it? When when were they traffic police and when are they actually criminal police? Yeah, so whether it's autonomous vehicles or no cars at all, the problem goes away and the, the, the police interaction disappears. Okay. <laughs> and, and so that, but then I want to get to, and, and this is something that I, I see, and I want to focus on the new possibility here, but I look at, you know, the projects that have been done to go create police precincts with ATM machines in there with, you know, areas for young children, with basketball courts. But if you've got a system problem where there's on the the news or uh, through social media that people are seeing black people getting shot by the cops in the street for almost no reason at all, then you've you've got to get rid of that part before any of those other benefits can be there. And it's got to be. It's not through the design of police stations. Yeah, Jeannie Gang put a basketball court in 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 a parking lot. You know, got rid of some cars. There was perhaps a point of interaction, but the endemic racism that you see in the police force. I won't criticize Chicago. I'm not from there, but I see it in New York. You know, I see it in other cities around the world. Uh, that's the point. The cultural point of who gets to work in that capacity with that kind of power, gun on your hip, you know, uh, and, and, and the attitude that that is empowering to treat people with such incredible disrespect. Uh, the police academy in New York City is an incredible structure, well-designed, very expensive. Uh, the culture of the police force, uh, uh, I think uh, it, 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 it's pretty, plain needs more education than coming through uh, uh, just a beautiful building. And so I think that it's really important to actually give some reference. You know, there's a couple of Australians here on the call. After 9-11, policing in Australia changed also because we were all worried about al-Qaeda everywhere. So anybody that was seen with a knife was thought to be an al-Qaeda terrorist that was going to go attack the police and lethal force was used to to neutralise them, to bring the public to a level of safety. Including Crocodile Dundee, didn't he have a knife? Well, actually, but, but he was a he was a white male in a funny hat, so he would have been fine. He, if his okay. skin had been a different colour, it wasn't he, a knife. Yeah, it wasn't it was it, exactly. Yeah. So, but we now in the last week we've had two incidences of people with mental health who have been neutralised with with extreme force, and we know from a mental health perspective somebody who is having a psychotic experience or a psychosis is more likely to damage themselves than anybody else around them. But they're treating this person with operational procedures that they're a member of Al-Qaeda that is out on jihad to kill them. And, and you go, that's where the software is wrong. You know, our software for society has to be able to say, yep, we taught you how to go deal with a terrorist. This person is having a mental health episode. They're not on jihad. They're not here to go and actually try to take you out. And we haven't done that. So I think it's really important that we don't necessarily jump on the front foot to criticise them. It's actually how do we operate their software. 
because most of these people are well-meaning people that just is they've got flawed software that they've been given. That's that's the generous oh, part about uh, the new uh, possibility. Uh, for I, don't want, I don't want to say too much, but there's a lot of discussion about not just in New York and Minneapolis and other cities about how to diminish the size of the police force and do the protective function uh, through uh, other mechanisms that are more community-based. And we've, we've seen that work in other cities uh, since the 60s, uh, uh, organizations, including the Black Panthers, you know, providing protective services in the communities. Uh, you know, uh, does it have to be uh, police force, you know, the history of the police force in New York, back to Teddy Roosevelt days as police commissioner, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, of all people, you know, uh, uh, was a, a imposition of reform, if you will, uh, to try to uh, uh, eliminate the absolute corruption that came from uh, uh, other uh, uh, other means of interaction where there was money to be made. Uh, the police force, when it was initiated as a, as a metropolitan uh, protective device, was uh, uh, seen as something positive. Um, uh, it, it can be, uh, but it hasn't been. So... Uh, you know, what's next? And so, Turi, I want to throw across to you, and this is like totally out of left field for you, so if we need to, um, we'll give you a moment to think about it. You deal, you worked in Australia with one of the banks here, I think Commonwealth yeah. Bank, is that right? Okay. So, uh, Actually, with Telstra, Telecommunications. Okay. okay, with Telstra. So I want to go in and actually talk about some market differences that exist when it comes to telecommunication providers banks in Australia and also police force, where we have very few of them. There are four banks that represent over 80% of the banking customers in, in Australia. There, there is one telco that represents more than 50% of the market. Okay? And when it comes to police forces, we have less than 20 police forces that cover the entire Australia. There are over 16,000 police forces in the United States. So to go actually turn around and do the cultural uplift and to make sure that you've got alignment of, of the software across all of those 16,000 is really problematic. The same way as with bank transformation, Australia has some of the most progressive uh, use of tap uh, technology on phones because we've got centralised telcos and we've also got very few banks. So therefore you're able to do an upgrade there. And, and I think that that's actually something that is both a weakness in the United States and also there, there was a strength with it because you had lots of opportunity when you looked at your banking sector. But maybe there's some things like police forces that should actually have best practice and that comes by having fewer of them, not having many of them. And, I, and if you haven't got that reference, then you turn around and go, oh, I hadn't thought that maybe we've just got too many of these entities and how do you build the culture across them? Because it only takes one police force to still have the old culture and shooting people from a racist perspective and you haven't got the rest of the country satisfied and settled. And that, to me, is the interesting thing. We're trying to work it out about solve. And, Lynette, to your point about, you know, the idea of who designed slavery, they were learning from each other, but there were lots of different slave owners and there were lots of different slave traders and there were lots of people who were then operating slaves. But they were learning from but, each other. But kind of systems thinking about these things, though, um, top-down control or having, like, four providers who are able to sort of all follow each other and make pretty rapid shifts um, because they have to, you know, there is great strength with that. Like when you think about um, like the kind of the way China operates, it is able to say, OK, we are going to do this and the whole society is going to follow it whether they wish to or not. So the question of how do you make 
change or what's better or what's more valuable. I mean, that's kind of a, that's, it's an interesting oh, yeah. um, challenge to say, are we, when we're, are we talking about a country and the way the country works? Are we thinking about the way businesses operate and kind of the underlying motivations of business, which are often, you know, super financial and things like that? And then when we think of, you know, police forces, and I really do resonate with that, when we're in an environment where I can see what happens in Minneapolis, I can see what happens uh, in the Bronx, I can see what happens in my neighborhood on the news very quickly, and different police forces are hearing what's happening with each other, you can uh, get these very rapid responses, um, both for the good as well as sparking negative, um, negative beliefs, reinforcing negative beliefs, things like that. So um, I, I almost feel like it, it's, it's not quite the same equation to ask ourselves, would it be better to have one police force or one sort of overarching police force? It's just, it, it, they're, they're so very, very different equations. So then the question, so the first question is, and do you need 16,000 police forces? And the answer is probably no. But do you need to have one? And I think the answer is no. So there's somewhere bet between. Because that one is the military when you speak in a national context, mm. right? <laughs> Although, yeah, well, but then by your constitution, the military aren't allowed to operate on the right. yes. and say, so well, no, they're kind of something else. But, yeah. but I think about public health and I, and I think about Ebola. Now, I want to go back to Ebola and some of the outbreaks that took place because Ebola, it's another pandemic we've been through, and Ebola was actually relatively easy to solve because it wasn't actually, it didn't have the type of spread capability that we see that corona has. We go into, you know, if, if you go into the same circumstance with people with PPE on and Ebola, it actually didn't spread that much. The reason it was spreading came down to um, traditional um, burial rites in some villages, which was that they would wash down the body and that the women of the village would drink the fluid that, that was washed off the body, which was passing on the spirit of the other person. Now, we just said that's verboten. Like we explained to them, this is why you're dying. Just don't do it. Change your, change your cultural norm. And, and that happened. And, and that's interesting about, you know, there's an intervention which was changing culture for something which was actually the culture was toxic to them. So let me ask you a question, though, in that. Is it the responsibility of design to change the culture or is it the responsibility of design to understand the culture and look for a creative design solution that fits within that context? So I'll give you an example. Um, it's with the HIV crisis. So uh, this was many years ago, I don't quite remember, maybe 2010 or so. Um, but there was, um, in South Africa, there was the, um, the aid agency that we were working with was finding that they were doing a lot of tests and people would come in, they would get a test, primarily men would come in and get a test, and then they would not come back and get the result. So, you know, you don't know then. So the question that we started to ask was, why is that happening? Why is there a breakdown there? And what we found was that it was um, incredibly shaming for a man to be told by another man or maybe a female doctor that he has HIV or AIDS. 
it was so shaming that there was just absolute um, kind of denial and unwillingness to go in. But the aid agencies were following established Western medical practice, which is if you are telling somebody that they have a deadly disease, you need to sit down and have a direct consultation with them to provide them the information they need to be healthy. So there's a direct cultural conflict and honestly, neither of them are wrong. So as a designer, you can't bias to say, this one is the right way, so I have to fix that other culture. You need to find a solution. So what we were able to do is work with um, a, a local telco that had a service that did free text messages. And they agreed to provide free text messages to communicate medical results, so your HIV test results, and do the consultation through your feature phone. So that enabled the person who had taken a test to get in a private fashion, like almost nothing is more private than your cell phone screen, mm -hmm. to get their results in a private fashion and then have a consultation about what to do about it. So, you know, I, I think as designers, when we think when we think about what are we designing, you know, we, we one have to understand that um, creativity is not necessarily for the good, you know, in Lynette's example, or if we look at, um, uh, you know, like Jim Crow and things like that, creativity applied effectively, but not for the good. Um, but we also have to ask ourselves as designers, what is our responsibility and how can we apply our creativity to um, go beyond the expected answer of something is right and therefore the other thing that is creating a problem is wrong. Yeah. And, and I and really, oh, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut in, but um, I really not think that's an important point, even in thinking about the police. Um, is really understanding the culture, one, specifically of America. Like, it's a totally different culture than, you know, more homogenous culture. Um, and then understanding the Black community. Like, there's, you know, two different levels there. And and a lot of Black people in, in, would argue that the police were really formed, so many police were formed, to really keep Black people in line in the first place. And mm -hmm. so when you start with that premise, like now you're trying to rethink something that is so deeply rooted and, and has so much history. Like you have to start with the, the point of even understanding like, like how to get out of that first of all, um, which I think is hard. And, and one of the things that always plays in my head is like as a designer is I feel like the greatest branding uh, initiative that was ever done was on black people. Like the way we were branded, you know, once we, you know, got out of slavery and Jim Crow and all those things. I mean, if you think about the merchandise, the artifacts that you talk about, like, you know, I mean, especially in the South, you know, like all these these objects that objectify black people, even in blackface, like we had such a job. And I mean, there were other uh, uh you know, cultures or races that had that done to them too. You know, the Japanese certainly and Chinese also, even in America. But it's kind of like ours is stuck. <laughs> and so we're trying to change a system that's based on such an ideology that I think is hard to just get out of that. And to the other point, like, you know, it's also about police getting in the community and getting to know people. You know, like, I think basketball is great. I play it. Um, but also there are Black people who are artists. There are Black people who are musicians. Like, every kid is not just interested, you know, and playing sports. Some of them want to do more, you know, cultural things or whatever. And it's like, until you get into, 
stop looking at Black people again as a monolith, you know, and really get into their communities and their cultures and really challenge them in ways that they feel like empowered, you're going to continue looking at them in an objectified way and continue responding to them in an objectified way. Um, so that was my little that I've been holding in. But. Well, and very rarely is a problem like systemic racism as simple as, I mean, as air quotes, simple as people not coming in to get a single test result. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, these, exactly. These, these issues are, are much broader. So, you know, as designers, right. I think our ability to start like um, one of my colleagues in, in Europe has over the last several months been leading an initiative to um, ask what is the role of sustainability as designers? What is our role okay. for our clients? What does that mean for sustainability? Um, what, part of what's been very interesting around that is that sustainability is also about inclusion. It's also about diversity. It is um, really seeing the, the lens of that growing from uh, like recycling or right. being better in terms of what we consume to really thinking mm -hmm. about communities has been really um, interesting. And I, I think for me, um, in terms of new possibilities, it's been great to see several kinds of those initiatives just kind of coming up within Frog. Okay. But okay. what I think is really interesting in the outcome of that specific work is that she's working on a toolkit to help us ask better, broader questions and, and kind of open our own apertures. Okay. Um, and I think that's, it's hard to do. And yet it's, it's probably one of the more exciting things I think is going on in, um, in this current time moment. It, it certainly takes time. It's not an emotional reaction or emotional solution. Like, you know, it does. It takes a while to get to that point. Julie, I want to throw it across to you and I want to um, just have a little bit of a chat here about um, aged care, which is one of your special specialties. And we had this conversation with uh, with McKinsey where we were talking about, well, what? how do you, how do you fix aged care? Because around the world, aged care seems to have had this massive problem, which is infection gets into aged care, it spreads and there's no stop. And part of what we what we discussed was it was actually about the back of house people in aged care that, that made the difference. And it was, did we have the right culture? Did we have the right um, orientation for the people there? Was there, you know, were people who were often not able to get a job as a security guard were now working in aged care as attendants. And you're going, well, somebody who can't even get a job as a security guard probably shouldn't be somebody who's meant to be looking after the, you know, elderly people because there's probably a reason they didn't get a job as a security guard. So let, let, let's have a little bit of a look at that aged care side because we've got people where it seems like we're storing and forwarding them, but it's forwarding them to a morgue. We're not actually forwarding them into anything that's about a thriving future, isn't it? And that's that to me isn't what aged care is about. Aged care should be about people living vital lives. Well, that's it. I mean, it's twofold, and I speak about this quite a lot. Um, you know, in recent years, which is great, the focus has been on the residents and their families. So whatever you design, you design around them. What, what has been a forgotten thing is, is designing around the carers and the environment that they're working in. Um, and I think the biggest issues, and certainly down this part of the world that we've had is, um, and always has been, is not having enough people work in aged care, qualified people, um, how do you get them qualified? And they're, they're probably one of the most underpaid um, professions ever. 
So, you know, the, the first off solution for everyone is like, well, just pay people more and then you'll get good people. But it's so it's bigger than that. You know, it's the environment's not, it's hard, challenging environment. You go through COVID, what we've gone through and in the last few months, um, who, who would want to work in aged care? You know, other than it, it really is a vocation. Um, and so in our design work now, a lot of our focus, because we I feel like we've nailed the, um, the resident side and the family side, and, and we can always improve on that, um, is what can we do to better the environment for the carers and the frontline staff? Um, because it's not spoken about a lot. Um, we throw money at things. They're not necessarily, you don't necessarily get a return for investment for, um, for certain funds or grants. Um, but it is certainly a forgotten part of the industry that needs to be looked at. Um, and I know I've been guilty, like early in the piece when we first started designing aged care, it was, oh, we make the front of house look great and the back of house, oh, they'll, they'll be whatever, you know, they'll be whatever. And we can't have that attitude anymore. You know, it's really got to be, well, I always, um, just like a theatre production, a front of house is great and back of house is just like a back of a hotel. It's not very pretty at the back of a hotel. Um, but there really has to be an integration of both now because people work in that back of house area and we need to look after them. Yeah, and, and so you brought up the theatre there and uh, many moons ago I used to work in theatre and I, I went from working in some really bad community-based theatres that didn't have shows that thrived and I found my way working with the Cameron McIntosh people who do Cats and Les Mis and Found of the Opera. And i got to tell you, the back of house on Found of the Opera when we built that in Australia, the pride that we all had because it was perfect and the culture that we had in the team and the show had to perform eight times a week, and it did that for 15 years. And, it, and, you know, I think if you go look at the difference of the shows that couldn't work out how to keep running and they didn't have magic on the stage every day, it was because the back of house wasn't right. Yeah. So, so I think you're right there that, you know, we do need to remember that there's the back of house or the operational side needs oh. to be as resilient as the front of house, and too often we've seen... And I think Bracken Darrell, the CEO at um, Logitech, said this, this next era of design is all about designing every department of the organisation. Mm. It's not actually putting lipstick on a pig. It's not actually in the usability of the products. It's in the accounts. It's in, it's in HR. It's, it's everywhere throughout the organisation, which is that solve mentality that's there. Dan, I want to throw across to you because you've, you've you know, you've worked in the Products for Age People, that famous brand that you had uh, or product range of, of the OXO um, uh, tools for kitchens. You've worked on the Ford, you know, how do you get people to not hit the accelerator and, uh, and drain the battery as fast as possible. But you've also worked a lot around musicians over the years. And, and I'm interested, you know, there's, we think that these things are just unique and that they're actually special enclaves, but they those behaviours thread their way through the rest of society, don't they? I know we found with the OXO tools that it wasn't just for aged people. There were young people who got a benefit. I know I've got one in my kitchen here so I can open jars, um, you know, and I haven't got arthritis, but it's just a really good tool for that purpose. So how do you actually go from briefs which are supposedly for special cases but actually then make them universal? Or is that something you don't know how you do that? You just do it as a natural thing? Well, it's usually the other way around. Usually, it's it's a, a brief that's for you know aimed at the middle, 
And the discussion is, well, let's look at the spectrum. And especially let's look at the far edges of the spectrum, because when you look at, you know, for instance, the novice or the expert or the weakest and the strongest, or whatever that spectrum may represent, you find a lot of information, a lot of food for design innovation, a lot of um, a lot of food for creativity. Uh, but you know, so the response is no. This is our middle, and you know, usually what I am saying. Let's look at the edges. You know, let's look on, on the outskirts. And I think one of the things that made Steve Jobs's push just so phenomenal was. He didn't want to have a few people, you know, that average that liked him. He wanted to go have a very special group of people who loved him and that loved the Apple products and that they didn't buy one of them. They bought the whole ecosystem and that they were absolute champions for them. And I suppose that's that interesting thing where so often people will think about the new possibilities as being on this average path rather than actually going deep and narrow on, on one particular aspect of what they're doing. It might mean that they have to share a few other things that they used to do to get that focus to go deep and narrow and become experts and actually show excellence in that space there. Sean, I want to throw across to you. Tell me about what your new possible looks like. Because, you know, it's six months that we've been in this situation. How have things changed for you and the new possibilities that you're creating for your clients? Yeah, I I, uh, I want to build on something that, that Julie was was talking about uh, around um, how important it is for employees or, or members of a, of a group or an organization to really um, have design working for them so that they can be sort of the most engaged, that they can be the most that they can be. And this has to do with, you know, absolutely everything with, with sort of their experience of where they're working, how they're working, how they're interfacing with, with individuals, what communication looks like. And we're doing a tremendous amount of work um, in that organizational space. And I think it's really exciting. You think about one of the greatest sort of evolutionary traits of, of mankind. It's our just ability to communicate with each other, the ability to organize um, with one another. And, you know, that's what's gotten us to the moon. That's what's built the, you know, sort of the, the, the great cities in the world is, is that type of organization. So I think, you know, when I pull back and, and sort of look at the role that design is playing in sort of shaping organizations, um, you know, me as a, as a sort of more classically trained designer where I was looking at function, I was looking at aesthetics to thinking about, you know, the an organization as, as a system is something that we can, um, you know, start to think about how to design intentionally uh, gets, gets really challenging in a good way, really exciting in a good way. And, you know, I think one of the things that I've been really encouraged about is, you know, a lot of the conversations that I've been having um, with folks um, in, in, in my organization, but then also collaborators outside of the organization is, is really taking another look at that. And I think in particular during COVID, you know, we've gone through the, the, the trauma of COVID. Um, in the States, we've definitely gone through a, a collective uh uh, trauma with um, all of the the killings by police that that we've been been discussing today, and we're taking a really hard look at that and saying, you know, what role can design play in, in reshaping these systems and reshaping these organizations? Um, you know, as Turi was saying, sustainability is is something 
I think that we have a little bit more of a connection to because design, I think, is rooted in sort of the creation of artifacts with industrial design. But I think this new component of um, social justice or thinking about, um, you know, how, how we can have a more positive effect in the world in that way is, is something that feels newer. And uh, I've been really encouraged. I've been really challenged um, in those conversations in a positive way. Um, I think uh, there's, there's plenty of people out there that are going to call BS on us for sort of stepping into that space. I was speaking to a group of uh, 700 um, uh, people that work at a big insurance company and they they said, you know, I, I was reading something recently about design thinking and how that maintains the status quo in terms of innovation, but then also from a uh, social perspective. And I think that was a really good challenge. So I see that type of thing um, becoming more a part of our dialogue. And, and um, you know, I, I've been encouraged by that sort of level of external and internal critique around the role that design plays. But I do really feel encouraged that um, we are considering, you know, that organization, uh, which is, you know, one of the greatest inventions of, of mankind is, is you know, uh, a government, whether it's a, a Fortune 1000 company. It's, it's an incredible um, invention to sort of reshape the world we want to live in. And, and I, I really like that about thinking about that as a design challenge. So, and, and so, Sean, you just gave me a little bit of a, a, a thread here. You referred to yourself as being trained as a classical designer. So then the, the challenge I've got is, are all the people on this call, are you all neoclassical designers now? You know, if you go think of, if you go think of classical music, well, there's people who are, yeah, I played the classics, and we know what that means. And then you've got the people who are the neoclassical people who have said, well, I'm going to bring a bit of new to it as well. And is neoclassical design, is that actually where you bring the solve and the style part together rather than just having what it used to be? And I, because the, the fight that I've seen go on about um, whether design thinking is the greatest, you know, fallacy that's ever occurred. But, you know, I, I often go and talk about music and uh, I was... I was taught to play the recorder as a child. It didn't make me a classical musician, but it made me appreciate music because I understood its structures and I understood how it worked. And I also understood how pathetic I was at being a musician. And so therefore, there's just like this respect for the masters who can actually go do it. But it made me a better appreciator because I learned how how the process works. And I wonder if, you know, in corporates by bringing in design thinking, are we actually teaching people how the process of design and the transformative power? We're not trying to say they are designers, they're just recorder players. And we leave people like you guys to be the masterful, masterful people who can come and say, now this is how you really use design and, we're, and now that you understand how it works, we've got a common language and we understand how to think in the right framing. That to me seems more what the design thinking era is about rather than replacing designers. Do you think I'm on the wrong track? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think I think that there is a, a difference between design. This is my my personal take that design thinking is something that creative people, that designers do very inherently, and the the banner of design thinking is you know some accessibility to that mindset to that way of approaching problems um, that that really can be for everyone. I, I feel really at the heart of it uh, philosophically is. Um, is is inclusive. I know there's some real challenges with and critique on design thinking for some of the, the colonial 
aspects of it. But, you know, to me, I, I do think it has that potential. I mean, we've all worked with collaborators or clients that like get it, that they are not just versed in the language, but really have an appreciation for creativity and design. And it just makes the outcomes even better. And, and I get really excited about that. I feel like over the course of my career, the literacy of, of collaborators that are non-designers has gone way, way up. Um, from from when I started my career in the early 90s. And I think that's enabled us to do more ambitious um, things, to tackle more ambitious problems. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I don't think... I, I, design thinking is definitely controversial, but I think that definitely has played a role uh, in, in that um, evolution. Yeah, and it, for some people it's a culture clash for them, isn't it? It's like, now I was meant to be the one who came up with the ideas here. Um, I always found that difficult as the banner of being a creative director. I'd walk into a room and it was like everybody else parked their brains because I had the word creative. So I just go and say, I'm just here to do stuff. Bill, I want to go across to you because in the pre-conversation, you spoke about the idea of the problem seeking. And I think the first time we saw that in the Design Exec Club was when Brian Collins brought up, like, you know, Collins is saying that they're focused on being problem seekers. They're not so much actually problem solvers but seeking, which takes this idea of design being about soul one step further. We're going to seek out what those challenges are. In the last six months, you've had a huge amount of challenge because you've um, been in Australia. You've also had um, uh, family circumstances that have been challenging there. You've got office circumstances that have been challenging. But how do you go out and actually then go and try to do that problem-seeking when you're at such a long distance? It's been interesting because, I mean, also I spent, you know, I, I've only been back in Australia eight weeks, so I've actually gone from a COVID world in New York of, of being in New York for six, you know, for the better part of this year and then arriving in Australia. So the... the the, the thing to, which I've loved about this conversation is this whole the whole systemic issues or opportunities, and then to me it's actually been this this world of active you know thing you know like we've heard it before but active listening the sort of listening to understand to suspend the judgment or the the, the traditional way that I've gone about doing things and I think you know if there's and it's interesting that I have incredible gratitude for. You know, which is a bit personal, but just about having this year of, of, of incredibly different experiences culturally and and really challenging my own ideas around you know where 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 value can be added in terms of, of our and you know as a traditionally trained architect to go on that you know, line, you know, it's so good to get out of your own lane. And 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 I think there's an idea around generalism, the generalist that is actually, for me, more aspirational now is actually learning far more and then being put into a position where, where you have to relearn and you have to, you know, you've got to use different resources to be able to sort of solve a problem. And then, and then the whole systems, you know, that we actually, we actually, everybody has a value of getting involved in the conversation to actually work through the solution. I'm um, in the pre-conversation I shared with uh, uh, with the panel here that I'm working on a small on a short film with somebody. I'm mentoring them how to do filmmaking, and the the idea behind the film is about COVID fog, and it has to do with agency, and it has the fact that many of us have had our agency taken away from us. You know, it's it, the agency that's been taken away is most of us have a plan of what the future looked like or the next two or three years. And there's this fog of COVID that's come in which says, well, we don't know when we can start that. 
You know, if a, if a ship's captain decides to leave a port 10 minutes late, all the passengers are upset. If there's fog that makes the ship leave 10 minutes late, it's okay. So we've, we, we've kind of got this permission that, it's a, that we know that we're in a hold period, but for young people as well, they, they were expecting us as leaders, to, as their elders, to turn around and shine a torch and tell them where to go. And, I, and so I'm finding that very interesting that this fog moment is there and as people who normally know how to think about the new possible, we use tools and devices to do that. And actually, Rick, I've got a very old document here which goes back to 2013 yeah. that you as the, as the head of the New York chapter of the Institute of Architects after Superstorm Sandy, that you helped go commission this document. And the name of it is A Platform for the Future of the City. And what, what I found really interesting and why I've kept this document isn't because of its, you know, its literary value but because of what it is as a statement for the future. The people in New York didn't know what to do and they knew that there were going to be new storms that would come and there'd be new problems. You know, I think earlier this year I saw that Dark Ingalls Group where we're proposing a, you know, a wall to go fortify parts of the lower, body, uh, lower part of uh, Manhattan and there's dialogue that's come out of that. But that directly came because there was a, a position document that shone a path to the future that said New York can overcome the tidal and storm challenges, it can overcome society challenges, it can overcome economic challenges, and it was put in here as a manifesto that actually gave that. So I wonder, you know, you've seen, what, that's about seven years ago, I think, for that document, Rick. In those seven yeah. years... That's, that's yeah, the, the, the remarkable thing about the document was not so much the issues that we tried to outline for the next mayor. It was written as a lead into the uh, mayoral primaries uh, eight years ago, mm -hmm. uh, a little over. And, and we're in the same position now uh, with uh, a new mayor to be elected uh, in November of uh, next year. Uh, what was remarkable about the book was that designers came together, architects, but not just architects, came together to talk about what were the issues that were important and how to collectively try to make a difference. In the same year, and forgive me for not having that book on hand, but I have another one, which was more interesting in some ways. Uh, it talked about New York and Los Angeles, the uncertain future, written in 2013, again, before the mayoral primaries. Oxford University Press, it may still be around. Uh, I give uh, David Halley, a sociologist at UCLA, a lot of credit for pulling it together. And there were 20 essays. I was happy to write one of them that talked about what you could predict about the future when it was so uncertain. Uh, because of all the factors that you mentioned, I think the future has always been uncertain. There wouldn't be prognostic. You know, there wouldn't be people who were predicting the future if it were a certainty and you could know with assurance. Uh, I think what's different each time is that there's some new uh, goad to thinking that the vulnerabilities, as you were describing in the pre-conversation, are forever. And I think we're seeing that with the pandemic now. It's changed our perceptions of what's possible in the new future. It's changed our aspects of uh, reference about connectivity, uh, about sustainability. We're flying less, we're not flying at all. You know, uh, we're communicating more, but the communications are remote. Will that then become the new normal, if that's the word? I hope it's not. You know, there's no such thing as normalcy. What will be what seems culturally accepted that defines not only how we design, but how we interact, how we communicate, how we work with each other. And the beautiful thing about what you've done, if I can compliment you gratuitously here and now, 
graciously here and now, is that um, bringing together people who might not otherwise have an opportunity to talk. And there's so much of that happening. You're doing it very well. There are other people who are doing it less well. And that will be, I think, the thing that redefines geography. And that is what I'm most excited about, that at any scale, whether it's never leaving your neighborhood, never taking even public transportation again in New York City, or never flying again, we're even more connected, some of us fortunate to have a computer and connectivity, uh, with people who um, are teaching us things that we would not otherwise know. My students at Columbia, we can't go on field study in Sydney or London or Paris or LA, uh, but we can virtually do that. And when I think about it, the great majority of my students in, in New York City are from India and China. And what does that say about both those who are here in New York and those who are interacting as if they were here in New York with a 12 hour time difference in Beijing. That's very exciting. And I think we will see that even with a, what is it, a 14 hour difference between New York and Australia, that will overcome that in some way. There were many, many famous writers, uh, Balzac for one, who just didn't bother with the daytime. They worked at night. And Mark, I think you're in line for being the next Balzac. Well, and so for the, thank you very much for that, Rick. For the for the people who watch multiple of these uh, town halls, the the trick is look at the window that I've got here, and you can see whether it's daylight or whether it, or whether it's nighttime. But yeah. uh, the lighting that I've got here in the office means that it's uh, basically studio lighting, so it's the same all the time. But but you are right that we that we have been able to go connect, and we've been able to change our idea of what our village is. Now, before COVID came in, I was planning to be 40 weeks out of, Australia, out of, out of my home here travelling and touring. That has changed. I think I'm up to, I'm just on the cusp of 200 nights sleeping in my own bed. world is dramatically different. But what I also did, I, I was reflecting and going, why do I feel constantly under stress and under pressure? And it was because I didn't know the condition that I was in. So I made a couple of very simple decisions. One was I accepted that for 12 months I wasn't going to travel. So then I could clearly go, well, I don't have to be every week planning when I can go back to the previous condition. And then I actually sat down and I said, well, is 12 months realistic? I went, well, from a business risk perspective, if I've got to set it up for 12 months, maybe it needs to be 15, 18, 20 or 30 months. And I actually decided that it would be September 22 would be the first tour that I do. And the reason for that is that even if you get a change in president that takes place on November the 2nd or whenever your election is, it's not until early next year that the new president comes in and that new president then says, well, I've got my 100 days to go get a lot of things in order. There's, and then we need to have a virus, uh, sorry, a vaccine, and then it needs to be given to enough people, and then it needs to be given to enough people, not only in America but also in other parts of the world, to go get that we've got this thing under control. And that's actually that's 12 and 24 months away. So anybody who isn't playing this condition at the moment, which was exactly what I saw when, you know, if I looked at this document, it said the condition of New York is we are now under threat of storm surge. And it was great because it actually gave a light to where we're up to. I think the important thing is the certainty is that we tell people that this condition that we're in, whether we call it normal or abnormal, that this condition is here for quite some time. The WHO came out this week and said it's got at least two years to go. You know, this thing is going to last for a while. If it's faster that it returns, great. 
But anybody who isn't accepting the condition is going to be continually under stress. And since I've made that decision not to travel, I then have to work out how to solve the not travelling and stitching this community together. And, and you go, well, that's a, that's a very interesting thing to go do. But at least there's now some constraints of what I can solve. And that's a, the reason I'm indulging this for a moment is to actually try to give everybody who's seeing this an opportunity to understand how to solve the stress or the anxiety that they might have by not being able to see what's ahead for a period of time. Make a plan. It's what we do in businesses. We make plans. We, we look at the condition, we make a plan, and we know that we may have to extend or shorten that plan, but make a plan. We know that this is a condition we're in for quite some time. And then you can set about doing those amazing things like working on the systemic changes that need to take place. You can work on the projects that you want to work on, but you can't work on those if you think you're in a temporary circumstance. But if you know you've got a plan that takes you for a period of time, you can start to manage them and you can start to work on them. Turi, at the moment in, in Frog World, and again, if this is uh, too complex, we'll, uh, uh, we'll drop this bit out, but in Frog World, what's the type of plan horizon that you've got? Have you modified things so that you are actually got a six-month or a two-year plan? Where are you up to? Well, I think maybe Sean and I might both answer this one. Um, but at the moment, we are really looking at um, continuing to be um, – out of the studios uh, for the rest of the year. And I think what's really been interesting is the work that's been going on around figuring out what the new normal should be. And um, probably one of the things that I think is most um, likely to stick with that is that we're really asking ourselves to think about the project and what do we need in terms of the studio um, to support projects. So where we've landed at the moment is um, we do believe that the studios are important, that being able to spend time together, being able to work together is pretty critical to the kind of empathy building, understanding, coming to a shared um, point of view around a problem so that you can go and, and explore um, and solve. Um, but we also have found that the company has managed to be quite productive in this remote environment and that a lot of the work that we do and a lot of the thinking that we do can be done this way, even research. So we're, the model we're moving towards is having the studios, but having each project kind of decide when do we need to be in the studio for this given project. Um, probably that means that kickoffs and certain key meetings will be in the studio um, but it allows us to sort of look more broadly at models and say, hey, it may be that because we can bring people from our different studios together, perhaps we actually set up pop-up studios in um, a different place that is appropriate for the work that we're doing. And that's where we come together physically. Perhaps we can... Um, uh, you know, sort of support different ways of work. And that started to generate some interesting conversations within different leaders within the company and different teams of what rituals do we need to set so that we maintain our connections with each other, um, even when maybe some people are working together and some people are remote or we're at a different stage. Um, one of the ones that uh, one of my teams right now does, which I think is actually kind of fun, is at the end of stand-up, 
where not everybody always has their camera on, all that stuff. Everybody turns their camera on and we do a clap, like we're going to break. So we do a clap. And it's kind of hilarious because we never manage to clap our hands at the same time. And it's always kind of a fail. But it's just a moment of humor and and trying to do something together and actually seeing each other. So, um, you know, all the way down to those very small details of um, what's changing, I think, uh, uh, was it... Somebody just a few minutes ago was saying that they're really enjoying all the new ideas that are coming up mm -hmm. um, because we have to. And I think that is one of the examples. But Sean is very much part of this change as well. Anything you want to add to that, Sean? Yeah, add, add to it. We'll, we'll get very close to wrapping up here. But Sean, take us out. Yeah, I mean, I think someone started this by saying, you know, that there's just all of this opportunity to collaborate, not just with people in your locale or people that are, you know, kind of in your network, but something, you know, I think what this has done, it's really expanded that. And I've been just so encouraged uh, internally at Frog and then also externally with the people that I've been able to collaborate with and just done absolutely exceptional work. Um, it's been such a, a, a nice thing. And I think also with clients, um, you know, and Turi is going to be doing some work uh, with, a, with a partner of ours that provides collaboration software. Um, you know, I think we're really thinking about how to push the limits of using that. It's not the same as being together, but there are some things that can actually be better. Um, one of the things that we're exploring with this partner is how can we, through a workshop process, be more inclusive, making sure all the voices in the group are, are kind of coming through. How can we help to uh, manage bias that we don't necessarily see and actually like kind of building that into the process. So, um, you know, I don't think any of us would have picked this path. Um, but I think, you know, just like with everything that's a challenge, there can also be opportunities with it. And uh, I've been excited just uh, for, for my practice and what I've been seeing Frog uh, is how we're adapting and exploring that. My grandmother always said uh, adaptation is the highest form of intelligence. And uh, I always think about her in moments like this. Fantastic. I think actually that uh, I'm going to use that as our end there, that adaptation is the highest form of intelligence because people need to think about the new possible in, in a very erstwhile and a very positive tone. Thank you all, and, and thank you, everybody. What I am going to try to do is follow Turi's lead here. Let's see if we can all clap at the same time as we head out here. Ready? Clapping. <laughs> okay, so. Well, Mark, Mark, we, we, you have to count down. You have to say one, two, three, and then on three, we all have to clap. Okay, so. It feels like Melissa's counting game from the last time I exactly. saw that. That went wrong. And, and I'm such a bad facilitator. So, Sean, you're going to take us out here. Help us with this. Okay, so we're going to do it on three. Okay, ready? One, two, three. <laughs> So what we know there is that when that can be solved, that we then have the technical capacity to go actually put on um, musical performances online. Until then, we went, thank you, everybody. This has been so much fun. I am always humbled by your attention and focus. <laughs>